account. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn open to um, Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and we'll be uh, in verses, start in verse 23, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. That'll be our text today. So I don't know if you've noticed or not in our study of Mark, particularly starting in chapter 2, um, Jesus has entered into a number of conflicts. Um, so the first one you see is in verses 1 through 12, is the first conflict that he has. Um, the second one is in verses 13 through 17. And then the third conflict Jesse walked us through last week is in verses 18 through 22. And all of these are, are conflicts that he's having with um, the religious leaders of the day and, and kind of a going a back and forth on, on particular issues, um, essentially geared around the, the, the old covenant and now this, the new covenant coming in and, and trying to bring some understanding um, to that particular situation. So... Through these conflicts, we're seeing a bit more about Jesus, aren't we? We're, we're understanding him a little bit more. So much so that if we didn't have these conflicts in the scriptures, uh, we would be missing out on, on, on parts of Jesus that we need to know about. And so the, today's text is no different. And we actually encounter two conflicts that Jesus is engaged in in, uh, in our text today. Uh, and they, all, they both center around the Sabbath day. Is, and this is what Mark is going to use. He's going to use the Sabbath day to reveal to us uh, Jesus, who Jesus is in, in a couple of different ways. The first way he's going to reveal to us Jesus is through his person. And this is actually Jesus telling us who he is. He actually just spells it out for us. The second way he reveals himself to us uh, is through his work. So what he is doing. So you have to understand that, that Jesus, Jesus uh, was, it wasn't just the cross that accomplished everything for us as believers, okay? Not, I'm not saying the cross isn't important, it's, 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 it's tremendously important, don't get me wrong there. But sometimes we, we forget about that Jesus also lived a life that we could not live. So and if Jesus didn't live a sinless life, his sacrifice, the cross, would be pointless, so, so Mark shows us Jesus' work while he was on earth, and it's really important for us to kind of hone in on his life here. So I want to read for us uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 23, all the way to uh, chapter 3, verse 6 today. So Mark writes, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of, of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. To the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. 
And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father, we um, pray that you would enter into our hearts and our minds right now and give us eyes to see um, just wonderful and glorious things about your gospel. Show us even more clearly uh, Jesus through this text that we would leave here knowing um, way more than when we arrived today. And that through that we would, we would grow in our relationship with you because of, of how we are learning more about Jesus today through your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I recognize that word Sabbath. Some of you may not be familiar with the word Sabbath, even though we say that, uh, say that word often and we use it often. But it's kind of a, it's kind of a word that's got, gotten lost over time. I mean, years ago, everybody observed the Sabbath, whether you were in the church or not in the church. Everything was closed on Sundays, everything. But now we've gotten away from that, and we, we no longer really have that kind of sacredness of that day. But just to remind you of what the Sabbath day is, it's, it's the one day in seven that God created for us in the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, God gave us the Sabbath day. He created the Sabbath day for us. And it's the day that when you go a little bit further into the Old Testament and you run into the Ten Commandments, it's the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments where God commands us to keep the Sabbath day holy. It says, work six days, rest on the seventh day. He commands us to keep it. But also, Sabbath, it signifies for us rest. And not just like a, a, an afternoon nap or you get a good night's sleep after a long, hard day of work. The, the Sabbath rest is, is different from that. It's a deep rest. So much like the word shalom, which means peace, it's not just you know peace as a hippie would say peace to somebody, but it's a peace that we have in God. So Sabbath rest is a, is a rest that we have in God through Christ. It's a deep rest rest that we have. So this is an, it's an appropriate uh, uh, text to look at, particularly during this time of year when, when, surprisingly enough, things get more hectic during the Advent season. We're going to more parties. We're seeing more people. We're on the road a whole lot more. People uh, tend to get sick because of exhaustion, and, and you're doing all of these different things, and you're not having that rest that God longs for you to have in Christ. So what Jesus is going to do today for us in the text, he's, he's, first, he's first going to deconstruct the Pharisees' argument concerning the Sabbath because they have it wrong. Their view of the Sabbath is wrong. So he's going to deconstruct that for us in the next few verses. Then in chapter 3, he's going to reconstruct the true meaning of the Sabbath that is grounded in the truth and reality of what Jesus has come to do. So first, Jesus' person, who Jesus is in verses 23 through 28. Let me just read this for us again. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields as they made their way. His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. 
And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which, is, which it, it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. To the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So this passage begins innocently enough. You have the disciple, Jesus and his disciples taking a shortcut through the wheat field, probably headed to the synagogue. And on their way to their destination, they do as any of us would have done, even if we weren't hungry. They would have uh, you know, rubbed their hands against the, the grain that they were passing and began to pluck um, pluck some grain off of the stock for a little snack. This is exactly what the disciples are doing. They're just walking through the grain field and plucking themselves off something to eat because they're hungry, innocent, seemingly. So just in case you have a sensitive conscience and you're thinking like, that's not their wheat field, that's not their grain, why are they doing that? This was actually a perfectly legal thing for them to do according to Old Testament law, specifically Deuteronomy 2325, just in case you're walking through a wheat field this week, it says that as long as you don't take a sickle, which is a, a tool used to cut down grain, as long as you don't take this tool to your neighbor's wheat, to their grain, you were perfectly within your rights to do exactly what Jesus' disciples were doing. So from our vantage point and the vantage point of the, Jesus and his disciples, all is well. They're not doing anything wrong. They're just headed to their destination. But from the vantage point of the Pharisees, plucking equaled harvesting. And harvesting equaled work. And work on the Sabbath day was breaking the law. And so this was one of, of many rules that the, that the religious leaders had in place specifically on the Sabbath day. So they had 39 categories with multiple subcategories that included other rules such as um, not tying a knot on the Sabbath day. That was forbidden. Or, or, or stitching more than one stitch in a garment. Forbidden. Breaking the law. Or even braiding hair. Forbidden. You're breaking the law of the Sabbath. And there's many, many more. So you can see that there's very little wiggle room for grace amongst the Pharisees. So in verse 28, because Jesus' disciples are the ones who had seemingly broken the Sabbath law, it was assumed by the Pharisees that the rabbi gave them permission to do so. That they gave them permission to break the law. So they asked Jesus directly, Why are they, why are your disciples breaking the Sabbath? And the reason they do this, you, you've noticed throughout the conflicts, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to catch him in, in something that he's doing wrong that they can use against him. So, so they want an explanation for this. They want to disavow Jesus. 
They want to discredit his ministry. They want to defrock him as a reliable rabbi, as a reliable teacher. And here is the moment that they've been waiting for. Here is the moment where they're going to force Jesus to give them an answer, and they will be able to say, we got you. We got you. Until Jesus answers the question in a way they didn't expect him to answer. He appeals, as he often does, most of the time he does, to the Scriptures for an answer. Because you remember, as our brother Jesse last week reminded us of, Jesus is not offering a new teaching here. He's not some new rabbi on the scene with a new set of rules and a new set of regulations. He's not, he's not even offering a new interpretation of the law. What Jesus has come to do is give the, give the true interpretation of the law to his people. That's what Jesus has come to do. He's not here to add to the old, as we learned last week, or even get rid of it. He's not here to abolish the law, Jesus says. So Jesus points these religious leaders to the one thing that he knows they know really well, and that's the Scriptures. They know them uh, forwards and backwards. They can quote to you huge amounts of, of Scripture from memory. Jesus knows that they know this particular story that he tells them in verses 25 and 26. So Jesus uses a passage from the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 21. And if you want to, you can flip there with me real quick. I have it marked, so I'll get there really fast. But 1 Samuel chapter 21, just to give you some context from where Jesus is coming from as he teaches the Pharisees the right way in which to view the law. So just to give you a little bit of context to, uh, to 1 Samuel 21, uh, this is King, King David, or almost King David, is on the run from King Saul. And so some of David's men have joined him, and Saul and his men are after them, and they want to kill David. So at this point, they take refuge with the priest in his home. So they're tired, they're scared because they're on the run, their lives are in danger, and at this point in the game, they are starving. They're hungry. They have nothing. And they enter into the priest's house. So let me read those six verses for us. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you. And with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is, ordin when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So why this particular text? So if, if, you're, uh, if you're looking closely, you may have noticed that uh, David does not bring up the Sabbath day in this text. 
uh, the, the, the priest doesn't even say anything about the Sabbath. The, the writer doesn't say anything about the Sabbath day. Why would Jesus point to this particular text when it has nothing to do with the Sabbath day? Two reasons. The first reason is King David. An appeal to King David amongst the Pharisees is an appeal to a man after God's heart. It's an appeal to a psalm writer. It's an appeal to a great leader of God's people, a man from whom they knew the Messiah was coming from his line. They could not argue with King David. Then secondly, the scene that, we, uh, that Jesus describes from 1 Samuel 21, it's a scene in which pious men, so David and his mighty men, are pious men uh, that appear to be doing something that is forbidden, something that, something that is against the law. So to eat the holy bread, to eat the, the bread of the presence of the temple that is only meant to the, for the priests was essentially law-breaking. So if you are just to walk into the temple and just start munching on the bread there, you were breaking the law. But obviously we see there's some exception here. And so Jesus brings that up himself in the exposition of the text. He says, look, they were hungry and they needed to eat. There was an exception that was made to the law here. So the fact that God does not condemn David uh, shows us how far away the Pharisees have strayed from the original teaching of the Bible. Because by using the scriptures, Jesus is telling these men that what he and his disciples have just finished doing by plucking the heads of grain off and eating them is the same thing that David and his men were doing in the temple that day. He's comparing himself to David and his men. So he's saying to them, look, we haven't broken the Sabbath law. We're doing the exact same thing that David and his men did. This was a necessity that drove us. It was not rebellion against the law that drove us. And Jesus goes on to say that, in fact, the Sabbath day was given as a gift from God anyway. Look at verse 27. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus is saying to them, look, the Sabbath day was never meant or never intended to be a hoop for people to jump through to gain a relationship with God. It was never meant for that. The Sabbath day was intended, and has always been, to be a reminder to God's people of the true rest, the true Sabbath that can only be found in Christ. That's what the Sabbath is about. Now, I would say that very few Christians uh, nowadays struggle with a strict Sabbatarian view. And so when I say that word Sabbatarian, I mean you believe that no one should work on the Sabbath day and that, no, that you should not cause others to work on the Sabbath day. That means you don't go get gas, you don't go uh, out to eat, you don't go shopping, on and on and on down the road. I would say not many of us struggle with that anymore. I mean, just 
drive down the road here and you see all of the cars out here shopping for Christmas going into Target. But I would say more often than not, most Christians view the Sabbath day the same way the world views the Sabbath day. That it's just another day in the weekend, right? It's just another day that I have off from work, another day that I can use however I want, however I see fit. So if I need to get some work done, if I need to catch up on some work, I have a Sunday to do that. If, if my kids have a sporting event or, or some other type of activity, we're doing it. If I need to get ready for the coming week, get my kids ready for school and get my meals prepped for the week and all of those things, well, Sunday is there, right? I can use that day. But what we end up doing when we do that is that we end up neglecting the Sabbath. And remember what the Sabbath is. It is a deep rest in God. You're not just neglecting a day, you are neglecting a deep rest that God has given to you as a gift. So it's no wonder that we walk around tired. It's no wonder that a lot of us are anxious and depressed. Because I think a lot of it is because we neglect God's good gift of rest to us. We think we can do it all. We think we can work seven days and rest when we're dead. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So God wants you to enjoy the goal of creation. He wants you to enter the perfection of the seventh day that he has given to humanity. So he's not just giving you another day off. If that that were the case, we wouldn't be gathered here today. The Sabbath is so much deeper than that. Look at what Jesus says in verse 28. Jesus says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. This is the linchpin to this text. If we remove this verse, these these verses don't make any sense to us. Because if Jesus isn't Lord of the Sabbath, then the Sabbath day is just another day. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry, and do whatever we want to do. So what Jesus is essentially saying, saying here, or asking here, is, do you remember Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3? And if you're unfamiliar, it is when, when God finishes creating the world in six days, he rests. Jesus is saying, do you remember Genesis 2, when the God of the universe, the God who needed no rest, rested? Do you remember that? Because that God who rested, that God who gave you that seventh day, is me. I am that God. And this is why Jesus 
can say in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. This is the only reason Jesus can say this is because he is God. When he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I cannot say that to you. I cannot, that would be weird. I cannot say, come to me, all you are burdened and heavy, and I'll give you rest. I, you will get no rest with me. You will get no rest from your spouse. You will get no rest from your children. I know, you'll say, can I get an amen there? You'll get no rest from your job. You'll get no rest from your bank account. You'll get no rest from uh, relationships and these things that we try to pursue to try to bring peace and to try to bring that sort of rest that only Jesus the God of the universe, can give you. So my practical advice is my practical advice. So work hard Monday through Saturday, okay? That's what the Bible says. Six days you work, the seventh you rest. So work hard Monday through Saturday. So work hard at your job. Give it your all. Do your best. Bring God glory in it. Then on, the, on that Saturday, get all your grocery sh- whenever you do it, get all your grocery shopping done or uh, get that paper written, get that lawn mowed. And then on Saturday evening, this, has, uh, this is particularly important as we move into a Sunday morning service in the new year. On Saturday evening, begin preparing yourself and your family, if you have a family, for the Sabbath day. Begin preparing them to approach this day as holy, as a gift to you. To plan out your day if you need to. So um, I I just want to say this strongly, that recognize that every excuse to miss the gathering of the body of Christ will come to you on Saturday evenings in Sunday mornings, you will, you will find a way in which to stay away from these people. You will. And I want to tell you, that is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. Satan, your enemy, if you are a believer, Satan is your enemy. He hates your guts. He doesn't want you to be with God's people. And he will, he will, he will work his ways with you. To recognize that. You have to prepare for this. It's a spiritual battle. To approach this day to intentionally rest. To actively engage in worship. Which means gathering with the body of Christ. Which means serving the body of Christ. It means inviting others to come and rest with you around your table. That is how we are to approach Sabbath day. Now, I acknowledge the fact that uh, there are exceptions to this. So some of you are saying, but what, but what about, but what about, I acknowledge the fact that there are exceptions. But I'm always reminded of this story that Billy Graham, the, the great evangelist, told. Someone asked him about the Sabbath day, and if, if you're allowed to work on the Sabbath day, and he said, of course, there's exceptions. But he said it like this. He says, if your horse falls into a ditch on Sunday, well, go ahead and get your horse out. You need to get that horse out of the ditch. But then he goes on to say, but if your horse falls into the ditch every Sunday, you need to get yourself a new horse. 
So there are exceptions to the rule, but not every time. God has given you this day as a gift to rest and to worship, to use it to point others to the truth and reality of of the rest, the ultimate rest that you have in your Savior Jesus. So in these these verses, in verses 27 and 28, Jesus is affirming and celebrating even this original intention of the Sabbath day. And as he does this, he is squashing the legalism around its observance. He's dismantling the whole religious paradigm in this short text. And he does it by pointing to who he is, his person. I am Lord of the Sabbath. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he goes on to prove his lordship through his work. Let me read those verses for us again. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So with this statement in verse 28, Jesus is not only declaring his lordship over the Sabbath, he's declaring his lordship over all of life. So we see that here in chapter 3. Jesus is in the synagogue again, again on the Sabbath day where a man with a withered hand is present. And at the same time, the Pharisees are watching Jesus. And they're watching him very specifically to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath. They already know Jesus. They already know what Jesus will do when he is in the presence of someone in pain or someone who is sick or someone who needs to be healed spiritually. They know what's about to happen. But they look at it as an opportunity to accuse him. Well, accuse him of what? What has Jesus done but healed the sick and the lame and preached the gospel? Well, they want to accuse him because He's flipping the religious and cultural ideals and practices on their head. He's telling them and us that the way of religiosity and the way of the world will not bring you rest. It's not going to do it. So Jesus is not only making these outrageous claims about who he is and forgiving sin and calling himself by by names that only God was called by in the Old Testament and saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he's also carrying out some pretty audacious acts as well. Jesus is doing and saying things no one has ever done or said, then or now. So this is what sets Christianity apart from world religions, all world religions. And it's just simply the person and work of Jesus. That's it. So C.S. Lewis um, famously has said that Jesus was either uh, one of three things. He was either a, a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was who he claimed to be, which was Lord. And he doesn't give us the option of a great teacher. 
He doesn't give us the option of a good example to follow, like people wearing the WWJD bracelets now again, thinking, what would Jesus do? Jesus doesn't give us those options. Unless your definition of a good teacher is a babbling idiot, or your definition of a good example is to follow uh, a, compuls- a compulsive liar. Because if Jesus isn't Lord, he is either a crazy person or he is a liar. So the religious leaders obviously didn't see Jesus as any of this. Otherwise, I don't believe they would be pursuing him in the way that they are pursuing him. He wouldn't be a real threat to them if he was a lunatic or a liar. They could just kind of write him off as such. Oh, that's just crazy Jesus. He says some crazy things sometimes, and we just kind of let him be over here. No, they saw someone who was dismantling their rules. Someone who was uh, tearing down the hoops that they were trying to get everyone to jump through to, to have this relationship with God. They saw their system of religion beginning to crumble around them. And so in these next three verses, Jesus brings this home to them. He calls this disabled man over to him in the, in the midst of the synagogue. I'm sure it was, was fairly crowded, at least with the Pharisees and some of the people uh, who lived in that town. And you can imagine Jesus having his hand resting on this man's shoulder as he asks the question in verse 4. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill someone? So you can feel the awkwardness as the question hangs in the air. As people are kind of looking around to see what's going to be said next. And the Pharisees' answer is silence. They have nothing to say. Because they recognize that Jesus has trapped them. They, they know they've been had. They know that they've been backed into their little narrow religious corner. And there is no way of escape. Well, there's one way of escape. They, they could profess uh, Christ as Lord, but that's not going to happen. And so they remain silent. They say nothing. So their desire for piety has made them insensitive to both the purposes of God and the sufferings of humanity. You have to recognize they don't care about this man being healed. Whether it's the Sabbath day or not, they don't care. The only thing the Pharisees care about is the law being obeyed. And Jesus is not doing that. And so Jesus responds to this with anger, and then with action. Anger over their hardness of heart, their refusal to acknowledge the reality of the Messiah before them. The Messiah who can not only heal this man's withered hand, and he does that, but also the Messiah who can heal the Pharisees of the disease of religion. And he's angered over this. And then in action in healing this man on the Sabbath. And in doing so, when he does this, it's not just a simple healing and this man kind of goes on his way. When Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath, he is reorienting everyone around about what's most important 
concerning the Sabbath day. That it's not rules, it's not hoops to jump through, but that it's Jesus who is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, I wonder if any of you find yourself in this particular kind of mindset today, this, this, uh, this mindset of being infected with a disease of religion. Because it's difficult to, to diagnose yourself. It's difficult to diagnose whether or not you are infected because religion affects uh, your heart, it affects your mind, and it affects your eyes. And that's what's happening to the Pharisees. Their mind and their heart and their eyes are all covered up. They can't even see uh, God himself standing before them. In the midst of miracles, in the midst, midst of these great messages from the Old Testament, prophecies coming true, the Pharisees missed, miss it. But we can fall into that same mindset today as well. So much so that you begin to believe yourself to be okay. You're blind to your need. You're unable to understand that your righteousness is not based on your own merits and works, no matter how many times we say that from this pulpit. But what Jesus calls us to do, and what he calls us to do, particularly on this day, the Sabbath day, is to take your life and hold it up to the light of the gospel. That's what Jesus wants all of us to do to take our life and to hold it up to the light of the gospel. And we do this in order to expose ourselves to the sin that is hidden there. And trust me, it will probably hurt some. You may feel a little bit of shame, but the God of the universe has sent Jesus His Son as a baby to live a life that you could not and die a death that you deserve so that you could be forgiven of that sin. He's done that for you. He wants to recalibrate our hearts back to the rest that we find only in Christ. Well, in verse 6, we see that this message obviously doesn't sit well with those gathered. Uh, Look there with me at verse 6 again. Mark records for us that the Pharisees went out and using his key word of, of, his, of his letter uh, and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus uh, and planning how to destroy him. So the Pharisees hold counsel with the Herodians to come up with a plan to murder Jesus, to get rid of him, to wipe him off the face of of the earth. Now, let me just quickly explain to you, remind you of who the Pharisees are, and then tell you about the Herodians. So, the Pharisees are they're member, they're Jews, but they're also members of a sect within Judaism. So, you could say that these men were the religious elite, and they knew they were the religious elite, and everyone around them knew they were the religious elite. And they were distinguished by their strict observance of the law. So not tying knots on the Sabbath day, not stitching more than one stitch on the Sabbath day. All of those, all of those laws are made up by these guys. Then you have this group called the Herodians who don't pop up a whole lot in the scriptures, but they do pop up here. Now the Herodians are on the opposite end of the spectrum compared to the Pharisees. 
the opposite end. They were supporters of King Herod, hence the name, the Herodians. They, uh, he, King Herod was, was the nastiest of the corrupt kings who ruled Israel, and the Jews hated them. So they represented everything Roman. The Roman occupying power and its political system that that ran throughout Israel, this is what the Herodians represented. So what we have before Jesus right now is both leading streams of the culture are represented. So you have the religious culture there through the Pharisees, and then you have the irreligious culture there represented by the Herodians. And they're coming together to think of a way to kill Jesus. Now understand, the Jewish people, uh, anything associated with Rome to them represented immorality, cosmopolitan, pagan values. They hated Rome. And so needless to say, these two groups were not friends. They were enemies on every other subject, except when it comes to Jesus. Everything about Jesus, we can say, is countercultural. The gospel does not fit into some nice little box that, that the religious leaders or the irreligious leaders can kind of put, uh, put the gospel into. Jesus is not part of the religious elites, nor is he part of the pagan world. And so Jesus' declaration of Sabbath, of deep rest that, that, that is only found in him, flies in the face of the entire culture. The entire culture. No one is safe. And you can tell, I don't, I don't believe the threat level would be where it's at if Jesus were merely a liar or a lunatic. They go back to C.S. Lewis's illustration. He obviously is something else to these two groups. He doesn't fit into either paradigm. He bucks against the moralism of the Pharisees, but he also bucks against the relativism of the Herodians. And so what this tells us as believers in 2019, almost 2020, that the gospel, that true Christianity will offend those who hold to traditional values. And you know those people. They're the ones who believe that if you're just a good person and you live a good life, you're a Christian. Which is simply not true or biblical. And those who take a more progressive approach as, as well. Those people who say, say to you or we see on social media, you know what, you just do you. You just be uh, the, vet, the best version of you that you can be, and that will bring you happiness, which is another lie. And the gospel bucks against both of those. So what Jesus is saying here, what Jesus is saying here is that if you want true rest, it's not found in religion. It's, 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 it's not found in self-discovery. It's found in Him. It's, it's only when you rest in Jesus do you find that He has done everything for you. It's only when you rest in Jesus do you find your true self. Because it's only in Jesus, it's only in Jesus' rest that a weary world can rejoice. Amen. Let me pray for us.
Father, we are grateful that we can be reminded that our true rest, our deep rest, is only found in Christ alone. That, again, it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on anybody else in our life. It doesn't depend on anything that we do or the job that we have or um, how much money we have in our bank account or the success that we may or may not experience in our lifetime, but that it only depends on what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. And so, Father, I pray that even during this Advent season that we would uh, that that would be what is that what is foremost in our mind is that is, is Jesus's person and Jesus's work, and that's what transforms uh, our lives. That we can enter into that Sabbath rest uh, confidently because we know that we have that true rest, that deep rest in Christ alone. We pray in His name, Amen.